0: KZSU FM Stanford, welcome to another edition of Hearsay Culture. My name is Dave Levine. I am an assistant professor of law at the Charlotte School of Law, as well as a non-resident fellow at the Center for Internet and Society at Stanford Law School thanks for tuning in today, and today we return to a topic that we 've discussed a bit on hearsay culture and the topic broadly is patent law and more specifically we're uh, i 'm very happy to have on the co author of a new book that 's taking a look at at the failures in the patent system and patent reform. Uh, the author is Professor Michael Moyer of Boston University School of Law, and the book is is Patent Failure: How Judges, Bureaucrats, and lawyers put innovators at risk and the title of the book, which which is which is quite dramatic, but also quite accurate, uh, reflects a a growing and continual problem in how patents are issued, how patents ultimately or the patentable subject matter itself is decided, and what patent law is doing or not doing with respect to encouraging innovation. The uh, cover of the uh, book. Uh, is also quite dramatic. The uh, illustrate the the photograph is of a broken light bulb, and so further illustrating in dramatic terms uh, the author's views with respect uh, to where patent law is. Uh, patents as we've discussed with Professor Mark Lemley and uh, Professor Josh Lerner of Harvard Business School uh, as well as uh, Professor David Olson of Boston College and others is one of uh, f- three or or I would certainly argue four broad areas of intellectual property law. The others of course being copyright, trademark and trade secret and patents themselves have a uh, – it's certainly currently uh, – Patents and copyright really are the two areas of intellectual property law that have gotten the most attention over the last, uh, several years. And patent law in particular right now is an extremely hot topic, uh, not only for people in the business world and lawyers, but more broadly, people that are thinking about new technologies and really inventions generally. Over the past year, as we've discussed with, uh, Professor Lemley, there have been about a half a dozen Supreme Court cases involving patent law, an extraordinary number um and And several of those decisions had significant impact on how patent law uh, is current is now currently constructed, as well as cases that are winding their ways through the courts right now. the pr- most prominent one being inray Bilski, which is uh, ultimately uh, may very well change what we mean by patentable subject matter and focuses I- I- on two broad areas, both of which we 'll be discussing a bit today uh, that is business method patents and software patents in patent failure uh Professor Moyer along with his co-author James Besson who is not joining us today uh discusses th- the history of patent law as well as what we mean by innovation and also uh, very significantly uh, engages a fair amount of empirical research looking at what patents have really achieved and not achieved when we talk about innovation innovation as a topic as well is something that we've we've covered uh, significantly on hearsay culture it's, it's a theme of course woven throughout intellectual property law but also so also, again, of great concern to people that are not intellectual property lawyers or intellectual property law professors, but are in the world of inventing things, to use a very general term. And, of course, when I say that, I mean – a wide variety of people in business and society generally and of course more broadly everyone who lives in in a world where we like inventions should be interested in what the law says and does about encouraging the inventive spirit so we've discussed innovation theory with professors like uh, Hank Chesbro at UC Berkeley as well as countless other technologists intellectual property lawyers and so today with patent failure how judges bureaucrats and lawyers put innovators at risk a new book by uh, James Besson and Professor Michael Moyer. We are going to be discussing with Professor Moyer some of his conclusions and how he gets to where he is. So without any further introduction, uh, Michael, I hope you're on the other end of the line, and thank you for joining us today on Hearsay Culture.
1: Hi, Dave. Thanks for uh, having me on the show.
0: My pleasure. Let's uh, let's go in for a little more detail for for those that uh, aren't aren't familiar with you. And and uh, your name is well known in intellectual property uh, law circles, certainly. But your background and uh, why you came to write uh, or co-write this book.
1: Uh, well, my background uh, is uh, I am uh, both uh, an economist and a law professor, um, and I've been moving back and forth between research projects involving economics and law uh, over my career. Um, I've always had a, a strong interest in innovation, and so that's one of the topics um, that uh, I keep returning to um, that's influenced maybe in part by being an MIT undergrad um, and uh, loving technology all my life. Um, uh, my co-author uh, was uh, the founder of a successful software company, um, and then after leaving that business, uh, he became an economist. And so now we've both um, had uh, a longstanding interest in technology. Um, and the immediate trigger for this book project, I guess, was our recognition that there had been a patent litigation explosion. Uh, the data on the number of filings of lawsuits, um, patent lawsuits in the federal district court, um, over the last 30 years um, paints a, a pretty dramatic picture of something that has gone seriously wrong with the patent system. And so this book project uh, was spawned as we started to think about um, what exactly had triggered uh, the
0: explosion of patent litigation. The the title of the book, Patent Failure, obviously, as I mentioned, introduction is quite stark and you've, as I mentioned, illustrated it with a broken light bulb. Um, to Before we get to your overall thesis and get into some of the details of the book, what, why did you title the book Patent Failure and what failure or failures are we talking about?
1: Uh, I'm glad you uh, like the cover, by the way, um, to show you how much uh, we know about um, uh, selling books. Um, Jim and I gave our publisher uh, one piece of advice, and that was: whatever you do, don't put a patent document or a light bulb on the cover. <laughs> um, but um, I, I, I like you; I like it. I think they made a nice choice.
0: So. I, I have a I have a background in this. My my mother spent her career as a jacket art designer.
1: Uh, so so, so, know, I, bl- so I
0: I've seen certainly there things. are people
1: out there that know more about uh, book covers than I do. Well, oh, I don't
0: know if I know more, but I've seen a lot of them. So uh, right. so I like it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, they did a nice <laughs> job. Um, the term failure um, is used to contrast uh, patent law with property law. So it's a bit controversial, but we take seriously the uh, analogy of patents and property. Um, And we try to figure out um, if patents uh, share important features with uh, the law of tangible property. Um, Partly, we chose that approach because we're speaking to economists, um, more so than lawyers who think very much of um, patents as property. And I think lawyers outside of IP... Um, also take um, the analogy pretty seriously. So as economists, we think that private property has worked very well over time and across countries in stimulating economic growth by encouraging investment and encouraging transactions. So there are a lot of different kinds of economic evidence of the success of private property. And if patents, which, at least substantively, uh, the law looks very much like the law of property, If, if the institutions and the details in the law are working properly, then the patent system should also encourage economic growth by encouraging investment and encouraging transactions in technology. So the title... Uh, gives away the conclusion of our analysis um and our conclusion is that our empirical research shows that the patent system for the most part is not working as a property system uh very simply because people who do most of the investment in research and development in the United States are not getting a financial benefit from the patent system. They might benefit from particular patents, but the average publicly traded American firm ends up losing more than they gain from the existence of the patent system. So that's the sense of failure. Uh, A a body of law that um, is designed to look like other bodies of property law um, is currently not succeeding um, outside, at least, of um, the realm of chemical inventions.
0: The you pointed out at, at uh, the beginning of uh, answering the question that you're approaching this from an economic standpoint as opposed to, I guess, uh, a pure law standpoint. And of course, we know with intellectual property law that the economics ultimately are directly intertwined with. The structure of the law. So I guess for for the benefit of the listeners, when you say you're approaching it from that perspective, and of course you wear two hats um, as a lawyer as well. What in in more detail, what does that mean? Approaching it from that perspective means in your analysis, how how does it differ perhaps from a purely legal analysis that that one might perform in looking at patent law generally?
1: There are different economic. Uh, that the patent system uh, possibly could serve. Uh, The first thing that people think about patents as doing, whether you're a lawyer or an economist, is you think about the patent system as uh, providing a reward to spur invention um, and ultimately innovation. And it provides that reward by giving some kind of exclusionary right to the patent owner. An exclusionary right means that when I have a valid patent, I can stop other people from practicing the invented technology that I've claimed in the patent. Sometimes, most dramatically in the case of a significant new pharmaceutical, that exclusionary right translates into big profits. So If I have um, a patent on a blockbuster drug, because I can exclude others from making the drug, no one can make it and sell it in the U.S. unless they have my permission, Uh, that's going to be a source of of substantial reward. And so the prospect of that reward induces people to invest in research and development of, for example, new drugs. Um, There are other theories um, about the economic functions of the patent system, Uh, For example, patents will encourage some inventors to choose patenting rather than trade secret protection, Um, and people also observe that patent protection will help uh, a particular party coordinate the development of a technology, um, and, and other theories as well. Um, But we're mostly interested in that first theory, the theory that says that a patent is a valuable incentive because of the reward it uh, provides through the exclusionary rights. And to check to see whether patents are performing that function, um, we ask, what's the total value that the portfolio of patents held by a publicly traded firm gives to that firm. So a large firm like Cisco, IBM, Microsoft, Pfizer, um, they'll have many patents that are currently in force. And um, I'll tell you later, um, we've got a couple of different methodologies for calculating the value of that portfolio of patents. And we put that on one side of the ledger. On the other side of the ledger, we look at the total cost to these same firms of defending against patent lawsuits. We add up all of those costs, uh, reduce both of those numbers to annual values, and then subtract uh, one number from the other. We find out that firms in the chemical industries and the pharmaceutical industries um, are enjoying a surplus because of the patent system. Mm. Uh, In other words, those firms are getting an incentive, the more research and development they do, the more profit, uh, patent-related profit they accumulate. Um, Other firms in other industries and pursuing other technologies will rue the fact that the more innovation they do, uh, the more of the patent-based tax they're going to have to pay. Uh, So very simply, the costs associated with patent litigation are adding up to be a greater number than the value of that patent portfolio that they're holding. Um, But um, it's important also to understand that um, it still makes sense for firms outside of the chemical industry to get their patents. They profit from the patents they obtain Uh, but they suffer more from the patents that other people are obtaining. And so we have what's called a collective action problem uh, that um, in many industries, uh, firms would rightly say we'd be better off if the patent system were abolished. Hmm. We don't advocate that in the book, but we certainly advocate reforms that uh, will improve the performance of the system
0: the uh, so the failure that you're that you're discussing in the book does go to the heart of what we would like patent law to be doing and obviously what you're concluding is that it is not it's not only not doing it well it's not doing it almost at all or am I overstating it
1: well uh, you're overstating it Uh, unless you put in the important qualifier Mm -hmm. that um, chemicals and pharmaceuticals and and a few other technologies Mm -hmm. um, are probably encouraged, or I would say almost certainly encouraged by the existence of the patent system. So, um, But ICT, information and communication technologies, uh, we think that um, even though the U.S. um, and the world have been, incredibly successful in innovating in, in ICT over the last uh, 15, 20 years. Um, it's not because of the patent system. The patent system has been a little bit of a drag, um, and uh, I think we would have done even better without that drag, without the cost um, that patents are imposing on, on ICT innovators. So um, you know, it is pretty dramatic when you look at most industries, and especially um, ICT.
0: So let me, uh, I, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but since you raised it and I think it's something that, that listeners, uh, would be curious about your, your conclusions and we'll, I want to, I want to focus on some of the specifics in a moment is a pretty broad indictment of the patent system as currently structured. And yet you, you mentioned, you mentioned just now and you take the position in the book that you aren't in favor of Throwing out the patent system entirely, and I understand uh, that there are certain uh, discrete industries that are benefiting from the system as currently constituted. But of course, based upon your conclusions, a vast majority are not. So I guess I, I ask the question: Why? Why are you opposed to that? If it, if the patent system is as broad a failure as your empirical research suggests, why not endorse that position?
1: Well, that's a good question, um, and. Uh uh, as you know, there's a, uh, another author of a book on, that's forthcoming on patents uh, who shares your last name, uh, Levine. <laughs> yes. Adrian and Levine have a book. and yes. um, Levine took a look at uh, a draft of our book, and he asked that question, too. He said, um, come on, you guys are wimping out. Uh, he said that um, uh, you should go ahead and call for the abolition of the patent system. Um, I don't think so, and uh, there are a couple of different reasons. Um, as I've said uh, there are some technologies where we can see that it's uh, certainly working. Uh, if we look back in time, um, uh, 1984, I think, is where our main data set starts. Um, we can see that um, the patent system was neither a, a tax or a subsidy uh, at that point in time for the average uh, publicly traded firm. Uh, that something happened in the early to mid-90s that set off this patent litigation explosion. And so if we can identify what that thing is and reverse the problems, um, perhaps we could get a patent system that across the board uh, delivers incentives to innovative firms. So I'm optimistic that we can do that. Um, When we look uh, at the broader historical picture, Uh, We, we, again, see a mixed record. We see, um, in many cases, in many countries, including this one, different points in time, patents didn't seem to be doing their job. Um, But other times they do. Uh, It's maybe not surprising that the property we're talking about being intangible, um, being very complicated, very abstract, uh, it's perhaps a little bit harder to get the details right. So... Uh, I'm not surprised that getting a property system for inventions to work is hard, harder than it might be for land. Um, But, um, you know, I still think we need to do the best we can to reform this system and uh, see if we can get it to work before we would think about scrapping it. So um, I guess I've related to you. The first main message of the book, that the patent system currently is imposing a tax on most innovators, mm-hmm. uh, the second main message of the book is that the reason that patents are failing as property is that they fail, by and large, to convey clear, crisp boundary information. hmm Um, And and we summarize that argument by uh, stating that the patent system fails to provide good public notice. And I'll tell you more about that in a bit. But um, I'm hopeful that reform could be effective because I'm hopeful that we can change some features of patent law to make it provide better notice. Uh, to the innovators of the world where the patent-based property rights uh, are situated.
0: The, so far, focused, we have focused on the economics, and the book has, has that focus clearly. And I want to get to uh, your discussion of the notice function and, and clearance and, and inadvertent infringement uh, on, on which you spend a significant amount of time but to return to a, a top level the subtitle of your book is how judges bureaucrats and lawyers put innovators at risk what are they doing
1: uh, well um i i spoke about Patents as being analogous to property, um, uh, or I might have said uh, that there's a property metaphor. It's a very useful metaphor uh, for thinking about patents and for thinking about IP in general. But regulation is also uh, an appropriate metaphor for thinking about patents and thinking about IP in general. And um, economists who approach the patent system as a regulatory system um, uh, find it pretty easy to gripe about the performance of the system because economists are used to griping about other kinds of regulation. So economists um, often warn policymakers that uh, regulatory policies will generate unforeseen costs, that uh, people influenced by the regulation try to take advantage or take control of the regulatory apparatus. Uh, to make some money. So um, we've heard people complaining about securities law, antitrust law, tort law. Now, a common kind of complaint is that there is some group of lawyers out there that's profiting from lawsuits um, that are supposed to serve the public good but end up getting derailed, not serving the public good but still providing uh, benefit for lawyers. So to some extent, um, and I don't want to generalize too far, but to some extent you can say that um, there are lawyers out there that are doing patent lawsuits that are certainly profiting themselves, profiting certain patent holders, but really undermining um, the goals of the patent system uh, so that uh, those lawyers um, are taking relatively weak patents, weak because they might be invalid or weak because they have a relatively narrow scope but arguably could have a broad scope, and they use these patents to uh, extract opportunistic settlement payments from um, true innovators. So that's a, a reason for the subtitle is that we see the lawyers directly imposing patent litigation costs on innovators, uh, and we see the judges and the members of the PTO as, to some extent, being complicit, uh, complicit because they've allowed the boundaries of patents to deteriorate, making it easier for opportunistic lawsuits to flourish.
0: We're talking with Professor... Michael Moyer of Boston University School of Law, author, co-author of the book, Patent Failure, How Judges, Bureaucrats, and Lawyers Put Innovators at Risk at a Princeton University Press. Um, Michael, we'll take a a short break here, and when we come back from the break, I I do want to get into uh, the issue of of notice and inadvertent infringement that you mentioned. Uh, For those of you that listen regularly to KZSU uh, or listen to Hearsay Culture regularly, you've heard this before, but I'm going to keep saying it. KZ. KSU is a nonprofit non-commercial radio station based at Stanford University that requires donations from listeners like you to continue its broad programming and that includes Hearsay Culture, uh, as KZSU, for those of you listening by podcast, is the home of Hearsay Culture, and it's through uh, the support of KZSU uh, for Hearsay Culture that Hearsay Culture continues. It is the home base for the show. For those of you that are considering i would like to uh, think about making a donation to KZSU, you have a couple of options. You can go to underwriting at kzsu.stanford.edu, again, that's underwriting, at kzsu.stanford.edu or alternatively you can go to kzsu's webpage at kzsu.stanford.edu and click on donate to kzsu. I emphasize that the donations are for kzsu. There will be no kickback, uh, to me or to hearsay culture. Um, but I do encourage you to, uh, consider making a donation to kzsu and regardless to, uh, keep listening. So, uh, with that short break, uh, we're back and Michael, before the break, um, we were talking about, you were talking about the issue of, of, of boundaries and notice. Uh, for those that aren't familiar uh, with patent law, what, what do you mean by those terms?
1: Well, a patent is a very long, very complicated document. Most of a patent document uh, reads something like a journal article. Um, it has a description of the invented technology and a description of related technologies. At the end of the patent document, there is a section uh, of claims. Those claims, each is a single sentence, um, kind of a strange sentence. because It's very long and, and very hard to read. Those sentences, those claims, are individual statements of different patent-based property rights, that are owned by the owner of the patent. And there are multiple claims because inventors are given a chance to write different versions of the property right. On the theory that new inventions are, are hard to understand, inventors, as a general rule, are allowed to claim a property right in more than just the particular embodiment Uh, that they have produced, and uh, the patent lawyer um, would have difficulty uh, figuring out exactly the range in technology space that the inventor was entitled to. So there are a series of claims, Um, and if you are interested in transacting with the owner of a patent, Or if you're interested in avoiding having to deal with the owner of a patent, you're going to, if you can find it, you'd like to pick up this patent, read the claims, and understand what you can and cannot do, understand who you need to ask permission, or in the jargon of patent law, who you need to get a license from. So we can compare this to what happens with property and land. If you want to um, build an office tower, uh, the first thing, naturally, that you're going to do is purchase the land where you want to situate the office tower, and you'll have a lawyer who will check the deeds, look at what lawyers call the meets and bounds of the property, and make sure that the plans of the architects and the engineers um, are consistent with the property rights that um, the builder has access to. If you need more property, if you need to go across a boundary line, you'll purchase the property that you need. Or you'll reconfigure the plan so that you can move the footprint of the building away from someone else's piece of land. So those two things are what's essential for a properly functioning property system. Um, just to repeat, uh, either... You can look at a property right and see what rights you need to purchase so that you can legally undertake the investment that you have in mind. Or you can reorient your plans. Um, Excuse me. You can can change your investment, change your building plans, so that you avoid uh, straying over onto someone else's property. And a big concern we devote much of the book to is how the patent system is getting worse over time in meeting both of those goals. So moving to technology away from land, if I want to innovate, where by innovation what I mean is deploy some new technology Uh, sell some new technology or install it in my manufacturing facility, install it on my website. Ideally, I'd like to know the full set of patent rights and the claims within patents that might be relevant to the technology I'm considering. I'd like to be able to read and understand what all of those claims mean. Um, I'd like to have an opportunity to negotiate permissions in advance if I need them, or alter my technology so they avoid moving into the patent-based property rights that are owned by someone else. Uh, But the the message of the book that's told in several different ways is that um, for information and communications technologies and for many other technologies outside of chemicals and pharmaceuticals, it's just not possible. So our patent system is failing, to provide the notice
0: function that it's supposed to is, is that failure, or how is that failure connected with the broad issue that's being that, that continues to be litigated of what should be patentable, um, what we call patentable subject matter? What, what's the relationship uh, to that issue?
1: Well, we find that certain, as I've said, certain kinds of technology are problematic. The very worst performing technology that we find are business methods. So we find that um, the rate of litigation of business method patents is dramatically higher than for any other kind of technology that we consider in our research. Uh, And uh, Josh Lerner, I guess, who was on the program previously, um, found that within the, the realm of, of business method patents that uh, there's almost an order of magnitude worse performance by financial patents in particular. So you look at certain kinds of patents and you say the business method patents or software, method, software patents um, perform badly, um, and then you drill down within business method patents and you find uh, financial patents are, are really problematic uh, what we believe is happening is that we're moving from technologies like chemicals to machines or buildings to software to business methods to financial patents, um, where the technology is less susceptible, under at least under current law, to... Uh, clear claiming. Mm -hmm. Um, And perhaps, besides there being problems with the law, perhaps uh, there's also something that's intrinsically more difficult um, about getting clear property rights for software or for business methods. Um, There's a, a long tradition in American patent law and the patent law of other countries of precluding patents Uh, on abstract inventions so that um, mathematics um, in its pure form is considered too abstract to be patentable subject matter. We think there's something right about that. um, And we don't think people usually express it this way, but we think what's right about that intuition, about that practice, is that As technology becomes more abstract, it will intrinsically be more difficult to establish clear property boundaries. Um, But as I said, even given something abstract like a business method or a software invention, we think that the courts have also let us down by not insisting on adequate clarity. Uh, in the claims that relate to software inventions or business method inventions.
0: It's, um, it's a fascinating area and, uh, Ben Clemens from Brookings was actually on, uh, over a year ago now with his book, Math You Can't Use, uh, looking at that very issue and, and he certainly, uh, went, went further than, than even you're saying to suggest that, that where we're headed is, is ultimately in patenting Mathematical equations and, and ultimately having that effect, and I guess it leads me to um, a, a, a related but side question, which is which is an issue which is getting a little more attention in the public eye, which is the idea of the patent troll, um, and, and you know that's the rent-seeking behavior of uh, largely at least in, in the, the public's eye and, and more famously known of entities that are that are purchasing patent portfolios for the sole purpose of bringing affirmative litigation alleging infringement. And these very well could be patents that have been literally not utilized at all. In your book, however, um, you uh don't – at least you make the argument that, that patent trolling is not as big a deal, perhaps, as a lot of people think. Uh, what, what's the relationship and, and, and what are your conclusions there? I guess
1: I have two different responses. One is that um, there's – Uh, I guess a range of definitions of patent trolls. Excellent, So if we take a relatively narrow definition of a patent troll as um, uh, consistent with what you just said, I guess, of uh, a non-practicing entity, maybe a holding company that's in the business of buying up patents and and looking opportunistically for easy targets, Um, that sort of troll-like behavior doesn't seem to be uh, much of an explanation for the explosion. Um, so from uh, our most intensive study is of the time period from 84 to 99. And within that time period, we don't find evidence that publicly traded American firms more frequently faced lawsuits from non-publicly traded firms. Um, In fact, they mostly faced lawsuits from other publicly traded firms. So most of the cost created up through 99, most of the cost created by patent litigation um, was a cost that was imposed by plaintiffs that were also publicly traded firms. So for example, you might find um, a large semiconductor manufacturer that decides to exit the memory chip business. Um, But it still holds on to many memory chip related patents. And there's an opportunity to, in a positive vein, license the technology um, or in a negative vein, uh, harass your former competitors with uh, frivolous lawsuits. Uh, So firms like that don't meet the narrow definition of a troll. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are lots of firms where you'd say their um, their motivation is, original motivation anyway, was fine. There are a lot of firms that um, invent and then try to commercialize and fail. But along the way, they accumulate patents. Um, I certainly don't want to discourage lots of different parties from inventing and trying to innovate, because uh, it's, a, it's a hard task We need to have lots of folks out there Trying to do that uh, It probably makes sense to let them Have their chance to get their patents And it wouldn't be a problem If we could make some changes to patent law That kept them from Deploying their patents Against other innovators That had a slightly different angle But an angle that might stray within the boundary of, uh, of a patent that's held by a failed innovator. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm not going to talk about it publicly, uh, well, a firm that's now publicly traded, but at the time was not, um, mm-hmm. but uh, kind of a famous story that, that your listeners are probably familiar with is um, the BlackBerry story. Mm-hmm. Um, so people listening to this probably recall that a few years ago uh, a lot of people were really worried that uh, there was going to be an injunction granted against the maker of the BlackBerry and that BlackBerry service was going to go down. Uh, this all happened uh, because uh, a man named Campana um, invented uh, maybe I should put that, that term in quotation marks, invented wireless email campana tried to commercialize wireless email but failed but his patent survived uh, and he joined with uh, a patent attorney and formed a company called ntp and they were able to successfully sue rim the maker of the blackberry rim was founded by a man named lazaritis lazaritis also claims to be an Uh, inventor or also perhaps could get some credit for being an inventor of wireless email but not only Lazaridis and Campana but uh, maybe three other folks around the same period of time now there was um, a lot of independent recognition of of the value of wireless email people would take different paths trying to innovate or commercialize that technology and the problem that we've got is that um, the RIM company would have no way of knowing about the patents that NTP would come to own, no way of licensing from NTP, and maybe there's no real justification for them to have to license anyway um, if they were independent inventors, Uh, so Mm -hmm. that they end up, they being the um, people at RIM, Uh, inadvertently infringing patents that are held by NTP. Uh, The NTP patents weren't providing good notice. Good notice is not present in this case uh, because, first of all, there's been a flood of patents in this area. Uh, It's very costly to try to track them all down. Once you find relevant patents, it's very difficult to read them and understand what they cover. Mm -hmm. And so a company like RIM could not, I think, could not possibly have made the investments they needed to clear all the relevant patent rights before they introduced their technology. And when the patent lawsuit comes out of the blue after the technology is locked in, it's very hard for a company like RIM to change their technology at that point to avoid infringement. So they're in a very disadvantageous bargaining position. The, the folks that founded RIM um, have succeeded very well. They're making lots of money, so they're an innovation success story. But the problem from an economics point of view, or an economist point of view, is that uh, still... We've got a company like NTP out there that's uh, taxing away part of the profit that otherwise would go to the successful innovator.
0: We're talking with uh, Professor Michael Moyer, co-author of the book, Patent Failure how judges bureaucrats and lawyers put innovators at risk. Michael, we have about 10 minutes left or so and of course uh, you know we're, we're we're scraping the surface here. But yeah I I do want to in in light of the issue of inadvertent infringement ask you uh, the question ultimately, getting back to your subtitle, is all of this ultimately a problem in the drafting of patents and more specifically what the Patent and Trademark Office allows to pass for a patent application? In other words, how much of the problem that you identify from an economic standpoint could be solved by increasing the staff at the PTO and what have you, but ultimately what I'm saying is have much more rigorous standards for what passes for an adequate patent application.
1: I think progress could be made. Uh, That's not the only thing that needs to be done, but uh, that's um, maybe the most important thing uh, that you've just identified, Dave. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a very difficult um, project, a very difficult kind of reform to implement. Uh, But um, examiners at the PTO have the opportunity to reject claims that are indefinite. Uh, They also have the opportunity and the obligation to reject claims that uh, fail to meet tests of patentability like novelty and non-obviousness. But in order to deliver to the public good quality patents with good quality claims, Uh, there's this threshold problem that examiners face. That threshold problem is the need to understand what the patent owner or the patent applicant is claiming. And um, patent examiners, when they look at something like a chemical and they see a structural claim, uh, if they have the appropriate background in chemistry, They'll have a pretty good understanding of uh, what the the chemical structure in the claim language means. Then they will be able to do the rest of the examination pretty successfully. They'll deliver um, a patent claim to the public that does provide the appropriate kind of notice. Um, But examiners who are looking at semiconductor inventions or... um, software application inventions or business method inventions uh, tend to see language that's quite functional. Uh, The claim language often speaks about what the invention does rather than what the structure of the invention is. Now, in some cases that can still work. Functional language sometimes can be clear. There are features of patent law that are supposed to help raise the level of clarity of functional claim language. Uh, But I don't think those rules are rigorous enough. Um, The Federal Circuit, the court that is mostly responsible for making patent law, uh, has been too permissive um, in the ICT sector, especially. Um, Too permissive in allowing patent applicants to get away with quite indefinite claim language. There's a provision already in the patent statute that says that indefinite claim language uh, is not permitted and claims that are indefinite should be invalidated. Um, But until very recently, the Federal Circuit has done, uh, I think, a poor job of uh, overseeing that requirement of patent law. So the examiners aren't getting much of a signal from the Federal Circuit that would say to them, uh, start getting serious about invalidating indefinite patent claim language. Mm-hmm. If they got that signal from the Federal Circuit, uh, it would make the patent application process um, more costly and um, more time-consuming, but it would serve the public well. It would help us uh, weed out more of the fuzzy boundaries of the patents with claims containing fuzzy boundaries that we see today. So that um, I I think it's very important that um, we lean on the federal circuit, we lean on the PTO, get them to take an already existing responsibility much more seriously than they have.
0: It leads, and we have about five minutes left, Michael, and it leads to um you know, a logical follow-up, which is, of course, there have been patent reform bills, uh, in Congress, uh, recently, this past session. what What's your sense of, of, again, we have a short amount of time, but what's your sense of the ad- adequacy of the bills? But more significantly, what do you see as the politics of patent reform in Washington?
1: I think that, uh, the bulk of the reforms that are proposed are desirable. Um, I don't think that they're directed toward the notice problem. And so I, I think they could have a positive effect, but I'm not that optimistic that if these reforms went through, um, they're really going to do that much to improve the clarity of patent boundaries. Uh, I, Jim and I are, are working um, a bit with some people in ICT trade Organizations to um, to get them to start paying a bit more attention to these boundary questions. So um, you know it's it's really evident that um, uh, companies in information and communications technologies are the ones that are leading the push for patent reform, and those companies are the ones that are bearing the brunt of the patent litigation cost associated with inadvertent infringement. And um, on the other side, the pharmaceutical industry, especially biotechnology, uh, is very much opposed to uh, proposed patent reform. Um, Their attitude is a very simple attitude. Their attitude is, uh, the system is working well enough for us. Let's not take any chances on reform. Mm -hmm. It's uh, an attitude that maybe mirrors the, the NRA attitude toward uh, reforming um, uh, gun legislation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Even benign, relatively uncontroversial legislation gets shot down from a lobbying group that uh, chooses the uh, very clear position that we oppose all sorts of reform. So I see the pharmaceutical industry and the biotech industry as being a bit unreasonable um, but maybe being politically shrewd of, um, you know, opposing any sort of reform or any meaningful reform uh, simply because, from their point of view, there's a, there's a risk that um, there could be unforeseen consequences, and they care so much about the patent system because they do profit so much from the current patent system that if reform caused an unforeseen loss of value to them would uh, have very serious implications. Uh, Pharmaceutical industry also thinks about what sort of message would reform in the U.S. send to countries around the world. Now, if we are a country that's relatively enthusiastic about patent rights and intellectual property generally, um, and countries around the world see the, the U.S. as having second thoughts, is cutting back uh, in the eyes of the pharmaceutical industry, that could send a a dangerous message around the world. Mm -hmm. So that's where the politics of patent reform uh, stand right now. We've got uh, powerful industry groups on both sides of the lobbying effort, and we're currently at a stalemate. Um, And um, now it's possible reform could still move through the Senate uh, some reform has made its way through the House. Um, I, I'm no expert, but uh, from what I've read from people I've spoken to, it it seems unlikely that we're going to get reform out of this Congress um, and we'll have to wait for a new administration. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that uh, people in both of the new administrations, well, whichever n- new administration we get, um, you know, I think they're, they're advisors to both Obama and McCain that are, Um, relatively sympathetic to the cause of patent reform. Mm -hmm.
0: So maybe in a couple of years we'll see something. The book is Patent Failure, How Judges, Bureaucrats, and Lawyers Put Innovators at Risk. The authors are James Besson and Michael Moyer. Uh, Michael, for those that are interested in in learning more about this area, obviously you you have your book, and and I think – it's uh, essential reading for anyone interested in, in, in patent law generally and particularly where we are today. Um, but do you have any uh, other suggestions of resources or pe- uh, for places that people can go to learn
1: more? Oh, my co-author has a, a website set up with um, lots of information on innovation. Um, there's more information on the book and um, the economics articles that um, form the basis for the book. People could find that by going to uh, www. Researchoninnovation.org, and uh, I'd be delighted uh, if people took a look at uh, the material related to the book that's available at that site and lots of uh, other material about um, the, the law and economics of patents and the law and economics of innovation.
0: Terrific. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today on Hearsay Culture, and I certainly invite you back as, as patent law uh, continues to be front and center to have further discussions here on Hearsay Culture. Thanks very much, Dave. The uh, author again is uh, Professor Michael Moyer of Boston University uh, School of Law, author or co-author of Patent Failure, How Judges, Bureaucrats, and Lawyers Put Innovators at Risk at a Princeton University Press. Um, a number of guests coming up uh, are going to be uh, discussing other areas of interest in intellectual property, uh, enthusiasts as 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 it were, and certainly technologists. Among the uh, guests coming up uh, will be uh, Michelle Bowens. Uh, president and, and founder of the uh, Peer-to-Peer uh, Foundation, uh, looking at the theory of peer-to-peer technology and indeed taking an even broader view and arguing that peer-to-peer as a theory can apply to a wide variety of areas beyond uh, merely uh, technology itself. Uh, additionally, I'm very excited to uh, have on soon uh, Clay Shirky, author of the book Here Comes Everybody, uh, as well as uh, several other authors, Uh, coming down the road. Uh, among them uh, David Rice, author of uh, Geekonomics, uh, Morley Winograd, and uh, Michael Hayes, authors of the book uh, Millennial Makeover, looking at uh, the new generation of voters and how uh, technology impacts that and also it, taking an extensive and uh, very deep look at the history of um, federal elections anyway, uh, congressional and presidential, and and trying to trace uh, what uh, previous elections going back uh, to the birth of our nation are comparable to the election that we're facing here in 2008 and 2012 again from a uh, technological perspective largely um and many other authors um and technologists and law professors uh including uh, Paul Ohm of University of Colorado Boulder uh Ned Snow professor of law at University of Arkansas and uh, uh, just last week, uh, you heard our discussion with uh, Professor John Teranian, uh, now of Chapman University School of Law and Copyright Reform. So uh, I'm very excited for all of those guests coming up. As always, there are several ways that you can listen to Hearsay Culture, uh, aside from listening live on KZSU, certainly the preferred method. But you can go to HearsayCulture.com where you can find all of the podcasts as well as uh, upcoming uh, schedule and uh, my blog, which uh, really is – An accessory to the podcast itself. Um, You can also pick up the show by going into iTunes and going to Stanford Center for Internet Society podcast page, where you will find not only Hearsay Culture but also other events occurring uh, through uh, CIS. And lastly, you can also get the show by going to the RSS feed for the Center for Internet Society's webpage at cyberlaw.stanford.edu. As always, I uh, encourage you to email me with questions, comments, suggestions for future guests, and any other thoughts you have regarding the show. You can email me at dave at hearsayculture.com. So thank you for listening today, and please stay tuned to KZSU for more programming. Have a great day.